0: receive, and Lord, how we should persevere in our prayers. Lord, work in our hearts tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. If I were to ask you to define the ultimate experience, what would it be? Well, for New Zealand's Edmund Hillary, the ultimate experience occurred on May the 29th, 1953. That was the day that Sir Edmund set his foot on top of the 29,032-foot summit of Mount Everest, becoming the first human to reach the pinnacle of planet Earth. For George Perry, an avid fisherman, the ultimate experience took place on Lake Montgomery, Alabama on June the 2nd, 1932. On that memorable day, George landed the record for the largest bass ever caught in the United States. The record setter weighed in at 22 pounds, 4 ounces, and was 32 and a half inches long. Imagine the excitement for George trying to get that monster catch into the boat. I said for years the ultimate experience for me would be to drive on the German autobahn. Picture 5,000 miles of blacktop with no speed limit. What a rush. My dream almost came true one year when I went to Germany to speak at the Calvary Chapel there. I took my daughter with me and we rented a car. And there we were on the autobahn, cars flying past us doing 160 miles per hour. We only had one problem. Cheapskate Sandy had rented a little economy car that topped out at 95. There we were with no speed limit, but we were driving a car with no speed. Moral of the story when you dream, be specific. But here's my question for this evening What would be your ultimate experience? A vacation with your sweetheart? To an exotic destination? (laughs) I'm going to get in trouble for that one. (laughs) To sail around the world? To walk on the lunar surface? What would be your ultimate experience? All these experiences would be thrilling, but none would rival. What is for all human beings the ultimate adventure, and that is an experience with God. Think this through. A frail, finite, fallible, fragile, foolish human being rubbing shoulders with the indestructible, indescribable, infinite, infallible, incredible God. Now that is an experience. We're talking the God who hung the heavens and parted the Red Sea and called fire down from heaven and walked on water and even rose from the dead to sense His presence. To feel His forgiveness, to behold His glory, to be touched by His tenderness, to savor His love, to hear His calming voice, to soar on a surge of His strength without question. This is the ultimate experience. Joseph Newton once wrote, Only God is permanently interesting. Other things we may fathom, but He outtops all of our thoughts. After you've experienced God, everything else borders on boredom. Sure, there's always an attraction to the new and novel, but it never holds your attention for long. It's temporal, it's superficial. What's the big deal about walking on the moon after you've walked with the sun? I love how King David put it in Psalm 84, verse 10 For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. A thousand where? a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. David said, I'd rather hold the door so when it swings open and shut, I can peek inside at God's glory rather than have front row seats for the wickedness of this world. As a child, I grew up in a Bible-believing church. I like to say I cut my teeth on the back of a pew. I was there from day one. When the kids at public school, school said pew and pinched their nose, I looked for a place to sit down. A pew. Any, anyway, I thought that was funny. In fact, the first word I uttered as a baby wasn't mama. It wasn't daddy. I think it was amen. I grew up in a Bible-toting, Scripture-quoting church. I knew the hymns, could quote the verses, recall all the stories, list the books of the Bible. I even memorized a timeline of the book of Revelation. I could preach, teach, testify, collect an offering, pray in King James English. I could do it all except sing. I was the poster child for a good churchgoer, a future deacon on the rise. And yet I had one major gaping omission in my spiritual resume. I didn't know God thought I knew him. I knew a lot about him, but I had never experienced God in a personal, intimate way. I was religious, but I lacked a relationship with God, and I was not alone. Countless people I grew up around majored on being religious, but missed out on God. Rather than live refreshed and empowered and comforted by God's presence, we live burned out and worn out and bummed out. We had missed out. You see, religion is like playing house with your daughter. When Natalie was young, she would invite me to dinner. She'd use her best china. She'd cook up an imaginary meal. She served it to her dad. I'd chew and chew and chew. I'd even send my compliments to the chef she and I would comment on how delicious it all was. I learned you can burn an hour or more playing house and never eat a morsel. And you see, that's religion. You can go to church every Sunday, chew on the pastor's message, comment about it over a nice dinner, even compliment the chef, yet no one ever really eats. You can say you're talking and listening to God, but sometimes it's just pretend if you're starving for the real deal, if you're hungry for a genuine relationship with God, then, friends, pay attention to Ephesians chapter 3, for it is here that Paul invites us to the ultimate experience, to an encounter with God. And he tells us what we can expect. He begins his description in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family In heaven and earth is named. Notice Paul experiences God on his knees. And this is one of those things that's so beautiful about knowing God. It's so simple. To experience God, all you have to do is drop to your knees in humility and ask. You don't have to coil your body into a mantra position and chant mindlessly or walk barefoot over hot coals, or go door to door in the neighborhood distributing religious propaganda, or pay huge fees to order the definitive recordings from the latest guru. No, no, no. If you want to experience the living God, you need to step over your pride and admit your sin and humble yourself and bow to your knees in your heart. You need to come to God Humbly. And you need to ask. Come to God thinking He owes you. Or you deserve to be there. And the heavens will seem like brass. But bow and repent. And God will reveal Himself to you. Jesus left His home in heaven. He made the long journey to earth. Even to Calvary's cross. To pay our admission into God's presence. Today the tickets are at the will call window. With your name on them. You can get in with a simple and sincere prayer. At the close of chapter 3, Paul prays for the believers in Ephesus. And he prays for us, future believers. And as he does, he reveals what this ultimate experience with God looks like. First, God gives us strength for our weaknesses. Second, he gives us presence For our loneliness. Third, God swaps His love for our bitterness. And then fourth, He gives us fullness for our emptiness. Here's what the ultimate experience looks like God's strength for our weakness, His presence for our loneliness, His love for our bitterness, and His fullness for our emptiness. Are you ready for the ultimate experience? In verse 16, Paul prays, that he, that is God, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. First, Paul prays, for power, strength for our weaknesses. You know, we were taught a truth in Sunday school, but have we really learned it? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Hey, me weak, God strong. Have you learned that? We're like pine trees swaying in the wind. We're about as stout as a wet noodle. But Jesus can make us strong. I love what one one man said of his relationship with God. He said, God had the strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. It was an unbeatable combination. Bring your weakness to God, and he adds his power. Here Paul prays for spiritual strength in the inner man. And that's a strategic point. The focus of Paul's prayer and God's strength is the inner person, not necessarily the outer person. You see, each of us is divided into two parts. We consist of body and spirit. We have a physical side and a spiritual side. The inner man is the spiritual part of the person that lives forever Whereas the outer, material person is the part that dies and reverts back to dust. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16 tells us, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. It's amazing how much time we spend on the outer man, the deteriorating part of our person while we ignore the inner person of the heart that lives forever. Did you realize that every day in our country, Americans spend $300 million on new clothes for their body? Every day in America. We spend an enormous amount of time and money adorning the outer person, while we ignore the health and healing and prosperity of the inner person. I talk to people all the time who are working hard to lower their cholesterol level and monitor their blood pressure, and manage their weight gain, who haven't given the health of their spiritual life a second thought. I hate breaking the news to you, but your body's going to die. Every one of us has an expiration date. Thankfully, your drop dead date isn't stamped on the package somewhere, but trust me, you have one. Why put all of your effort into the part of you that's going to end up shriveling away? When the outer man grows weak and anemic and sick, we know how to treat it. We eat some chicken soup or we visit the doctor and fill a prescription. But what do you do when the inner man gets down and sick and overwhelmed? Well, some people try to escape the problem. Others numb the pain. Still others analyze or psychologize their way through the difficulty. You know what Paul tells us to do? He says we should pray. We should pray that God will send His Holy Spirit to strengthen us with His might. It's interesting the Greek word translated might is dunamis. You know that word. It's it's the word from which we get the English words dynamite or dynamic or dynamo. The Holy Spirit is our dynamite. He creates a spiritual combustion inside us. Ask God to strengthen you with His might. I remember uh, when Reebok pumps came out. The tennis shoes. I was playing basketball at the time. Reebok pumps. What a breakthrough. They were hailed as the great breakthrough in basketball shoes. When the going got rough and you needed a lift, you could just pump up your shoes. You could jump a little higher. You could run a little faster. When you needed to reach down and, and start over, all you had to do was push that orange button on the tongue of your shoe. Pumped that button and it inflated the shoe's inner lining. I thought, man, this is so cool at last. White guys can jump. (laughs) In fact, did you know they still make Reebok pumps? They do. Wearing a pair of those pumps meant that though your foot received the same jolt as it did before, now there was a cushion between the sole of your foot and the floor. And you see, this is how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. When life gets jarring and pounding, you can pray and you can pump up your spirit. The Holy Spirit will fill the inner lining of your life. He'll provide you some spiritual cushion between your soul and this hardcore world. You'll still get jolted, difficulties won't vanish. But now when you take a hit, you'll bounce rather than bruise. There'll be an inner strength that will absorb the shock. Paul asked God to give the Ephesians strength for their weakness. Pump them up, Lord. But he also asked God to give them a presence for their loneliness. He prays in verse 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. God's presence can put an end to your loneliness. Once we had a young man who gave his life to Jesus and he got involved in our church. And a little later, he enlisted in the Marine Corps. I'll never forget how nervous he was about boot camp. But the thought that comforted him the most was when I told him, John, from the moment you gave your life to Jesus, you were assured that you would never be alone again. And it's true. A follower of Jesus is never alone. If you're in Christ, Jesus lives in you. You have a permanent roommate. Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Jesus has made his heart, your heart, his home. You're his permanent residence. But you know he's after more than just an address. Jesus wants a place where he can feel comfortable. The word translated here, dwell, means to settle down and make oneself at home. It carries the idea of unpacking your stuff and arranging the space to your own liking. See, Jesus wants to move into your life with all of his blessings, stretch out his influence, and feel at home in your heart. Now, if I were to walk into your house one afternoon and you casually said to me, Pastor Sandy, oh, good to see you. Just make yourself right at home. You wouldn't really mean that. No way. For if I made myself at home, I'd take off my shoes and socks very first thing and sling them over into a corner. Then I'd raid the icebox. I'd start moving the furniture around. I'd find a football game on TV. I'd flop down on the couch and probably start picking my nose. Or at least clean the lint out from between my toes. Don't believe me? Just ask my wife. It wouldn't be long before I'd make you so hopping mad you'd shout at me at the top of your lungs and in angry tones tell me to make like a banana and split. Well, Jesus really does want to make Himself at home in your heart. He wants to move in with all His stuff. Unpack, take over, settle in, get comfortable in you. And at first, it's great to have Jesus move in. For wherever Jesus goes, he brings his love and joy and peace and power. Jesus has some really cool stuff, and he shares it with his roomies. Jesus makes for a great roommate. He's always up to something new and exciting. Believe me, Jesus knows how to have a good time. But you see, the conflict comes when Jesus starts to make changes that are uncomfortable for you. He wants to rearrange the furniture, or he wants to clean out some smelly closets, (laughs) or you've got some dirty stuff that you've been hiding, or he wants to reprogram your TV, or get rid of some of the links you've been going to on your computer, or eliminate some of the songs on your playlist. At first, our tendency is to resist these changes, Until we're reminded of who He is and what He's done for us. Jesus is Lord. That means He's head honcho. He's the boss. He's the master and commander. And He's been so good to me. I want Him to be comfortable in my heart. Yet initially His adjustments produce some hesitancy, some fear. I'm not quite sure where it's all headed. Let's say you had a new roommate. And one day you came home to discover that the old rug in your living room was gone. That rug. You're shocked. That rug was a family heirloom. Your mom changed your diapers on that rug. You knew it stunk. And you suspected your roommate was allergic to it, but you loved that old rug. And you kept it around for sentimental reasons. You can't wait to get your hands on your roommate and demand that he retrieve for you your favorite rug. That is until the next day. You open the door, come home from work, you walk inside. And to your amazement, your whole house has brand new carpet. We're talking plush, pile carpet. It's beautiful. And you're blown away. You'll never think a second thought about that old rug again. Now you can't wait to get your hands on your roommate so you can hug him and thank him for his generosity and the wonderful changes that he's made. Hopefully you see where I'm going with my parable. There's a lot of dirty habits that we maintain in our lives just for sentimental reasons. Yet they stink. And Jesus is allergic to them. And they really got to go. It's hard to turn loose of patterns and attitudes. But it's worth it for whatever Jesus takes from me, He promises to replace it with something infinitely better. His blessings are lavish and plush. You can never afford them on your own, but Jesus is so generous. He desires to supply your life with the richest and the best. The only thing that holds our Lord back from making even more changes for the better is our own reluctance. We need to stop being scared. We need to stop holding Him back. We need to rise up in faith and turn it all over to Jesus. Friends, remember Psalm 84 verse 11 no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Let Jesus make your heart his home. And if you do, you'll begin to experience the grace and glory and goodness of God. Well, Paul prays next that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. When we come to Jesus, he first grounds us in his love, then we grow up in his love. We're grounded, then we grow up. We root downward, then we shoot upwards. Here Paul asks God to give us love in place of our bitterness. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do you know God loves you? Look to the cross. God demonstrates his love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is where you know love. This is where you see his love on on display. At the cross. God sacrificed his only son. Most of you have been in the delivery room. And you've experienced the thrill of cradling a newborn baby in your arms. You're so proud of that little infant. It's wrinkled and shriveled. Its head is lopsided from sliding through the birth canal. It's covered with blood and goo. I mean, in the first few moments of life, a baby's one ugly critter. If you were crawling under your house and saw a newborn staring back at you, you'd call an exterminator. And yet, in the eyes of love, there is nothing more beautiful and more gorgeous and more precious than your little baby. Now, what if you were in the delivery room, cuddling and cooing over your newborn, and suddenly a man with an assault rifle burst into the room and tried to snatch that baby from your arms? What would you do? I know what you'd do. You'd die holding on to your baby. There's no way that you would give up your newborn. You would fight and scrap to hold on to your child. And yet think about this. God said goodbye to His only Son. He allowed Jesus to be mistreated. His body to be tortured. His hands and feet nailed to a board. Jesus was God's kid. He loved Him. And yet God sacrificed Jesus for you if God never did anything else for us, the cross alone would be enough for us to be confident of His love. We'd still have overwhelming motivation to give our lives to Him since He gave so much for us. In Romans 5, we're told God, God's love was set out or displayed on the cross. But there's more to the story. For in verse 5 of that chapter, we're told, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Notice this, God's love is set out on the cross, but it gets poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. An experience with God is like a skyscraper. Its peak reaches high into the heavens, But only after its foundation is poured deep below the surface. You see, you begin the Christian life looking to Calvary's cross. And then the Spirit brings God's love down from that cross and pours it into every crevice of your heart in your life. Faith in the love that Jesus has shown comes first. Then an experience of the love that Jesus will show comes next. I love an Old Testament analogy. After the priest made the sacrifice, he took the carcass outside the gate and he burned it. The ashes were then collected and they were mixed with water. And then a leafy branch sprinkled the mixture on whatever it was that needed to be dedicated. You see, the effects and merits of the sacrifice were transferred by the water. And this is why the Holy Spirit is referred to as water. For the Holy Spirit conveys the merits of what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago to our hearts today. Again, God's love is set out on the cross of Calvary, but His love is poured out by His Spirit in our hearts. It's vital to be grounded in the knowledge of God's love, but a foundation is not an end in itself. If all you are is rooted and grounded, you're just a stump. Yes, you need to sink your roots downward into the love of God, but then you need to shoot your roots, your leaves upward as far as you can. And this is why he tells us that you may know the width and length and breadth and height of his love. God wants us to experience the full volume of his love for us. How wide his love has reached to get us. How long his love will go to keep us. How deep. His love moves to save us. And how high His love will rise to bless us. God wants us to comprehend His love. The word comprehend in Latin is the word prehendre, which means to grasp. We say that a monkey has a prehensile tail because its tail was designed to clutch on and grasp and pick stuff up and hold on to things. And likewise, when we ask God, He'll give us a grasping ability. He gives us the capacity to latch on to His love. See, the Holy Spirit is able to line our hearts with spiritual Velcro so that the love of God sticks. It becomes meat on the bones. We begin to sense it and feel it and experience and enjoy His love. God wants us to comprehend the full extent of His love for us when you read the bible don't just study it like a textbook read it like a menu read it with the intention of ordering from it and tasting its treats god wants his love to be more than an abstract concept god's love is a love that passes knowledge and by the way what a line the love which passes knowledge you know, at first glance this is an odd statement And yet, think it through. There really are only two means of human discovery, by study or by experience. Take a bowl of ice cream, for example. How do I know it tastes good? Well, I can put a drop on a slide and put it under a microscope. And then I can run chemical tests on the ice cream, comparing it to the composition of my taste buds. I can feed all the data into a computer and it'll tell me what kind of sensory reaction I can expect when the ice cream hits my tongue or I can just take a bite. That's why David tells us in Psalm 34 verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God cuts to the chase. Rather than spend years studying and researching God's love, as fulfilling as that would be, God makes it easier for us We can taste his love right now. See for yourself that his love is good. Ask God to pour out his love into your heart. God swaps his love for our bitterness. And then finally, Paul prays that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prays and asks God to give the Ephesians and us a fullness for our emptiness. Now realize, our physical bodies are quite porous. It's not evident to the naked eye, but our flesh is for the most part like a sponge. Your body consists of 92% water, only 8% solids. I suppose if you ever sprung a leak, you'd pop like a water balloon. But God has constructed our spirit much the same way. The inner man is also very porous. Spiritually, we're permeable and absorbent. Our lives are easily influenced by external forces, good and bad. We can get absorbed into something of interest. We're like bounty paper towels, the quicker picker-upper. The problem, though, is that we get wrapped up in things that really don't matter in the long run. We're a quicker picker-upper, all right, but we're quick to pick up stuff that eventually lets us down. This is why life gets frustrating. Emptiness can overwhelm us. Yet God made us pour us so that he could pour into our lives his fullness. He wants to saturate us with himself and fill our empty spaces with his love and with his purposes. God wants to flood your life with his presence and his peace and his power. He wants to pump new life into your family and into your marriage and your work and your friendships. God wants to fill your emptiness with his fullness. He desires my life to become spiritually saturated, totally absorbed with Him, so full of Him that I can't help but to drip His goodness onto others. God wants you and us to be soaked in His Son, so saturated in His Spirit that when the world squeezes us and puts pressure on us, outflows His love. Hey, right now, when you're squeezed, what comes out? Perhaps anger, maybe hatred, often envy or worry or impatience. If that's what flows out, apparently that's the stuff that you've been soaking in. How many of us have been marinating in negativity, absorbing the wrong attitudes? It's time to pray and ask God to replace our emptiness with His fullness. It's interesting, Paul closes his prayer with praise. Verse 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Note Paul prays according to the power that works in us. He prays to the scale of God's ability. His prayers are based on God's immense capabilities. He doesn't call on God to give us a portion of his power. Rather, he prays in proportion to God's power. Whatever he asks of God, he realizes that God has an endless supply and he has infinite capabilities. This caused Paul to pray big prayers. I hope you pray big prayers. We have a big God. Let me close with a final look at verse 21. We have a God who will do what we ask but more He'll do all that we ask, but more He'll do all that we ask or think, but still more He'll do above all that we ask or think, but more. He'll do abundantly above all that we ask or think, but our Lord will still do more. He'll do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Paul stacks superlative on top of superlative to help us realize that our God wants to do in us far, far more than we could ever imagine, if we'll ask. If you're looking for the ultimate experience to know God, His strength for your weakness, His presence for your loneliness, His love for your bitterness, and His fullness for your emptiness, then be like Paul. Bow your knee, bow your heart, bow your life, and pray.